welcome to the Men in Lead podcast. So what are you doing to kind of like mitigate that? Do you feel like you have to change some major things to get your energy back online? Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of dealing with it. I'm just kind of, I did like a, one of the days that I worked, I couldn't sleep at all. So I wound up sleeping for like, I don't know, maybe two hours. And then I went and worked like 14 hours. So I was that after that day, like I just got pretty tired. And because I had to go back to work the next day after that, too. So the guy was trying to catch up. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, are you on modafinil or something? No, I don't take anything. <laughs> Have you ever considered it? Um, It's not like my brain function is off. It's just like my I'm just like overall tired. Like, I just want to sleep. And so I'm like cognitively, I'm fine. Like I can perform perfectly fine. It just like, I think it just beats up on me over after a while. So like I'll recover in a couple days. Then the other thing too, is like, after I didn't sleep, I, uh, I went and did a, uh, like, so I worked those two days that first day I didn't sleep. And then after that, I came off and I was like, man, I'm going to go do a really tough workout. So then I went and like worked out for like two hours and that just, that just cooked it. That's, that's when it, that's when it hit. <laughs> A two hour workout. <laughs> oh my goodness, man. So, cause I've only have like one or two days a week to work out. So. Yeah. But the two hour workouts is that's pretty long, man. Some people say it's counterproductive when you train past one hour. What did you do for like two hours? I did all my upper body. Like everything. <laughs> 10 sets of each. Uh, I did 10 sets of shoulders, 10 sets of back, 10 sets of chest. And then I did like five sets, of, five to six sets of um, arms. <laughs> <laughs> did you superset or just like do a set, rest three minutes, do a set? No, I superset everything. Every single exercise was superset. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that's going to take forever. You're going to wait like three minutes, do another set. <laughs> well, that's why it took me. And I was like with my fiance's brother and he was like, we were working out and he was just like, after we did like everything for chest and back, he's like, man, I'm done. <laughs> I was like, no, we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, man. That's crazy. Like, uh, I think how many reps did you, did you do like a 10 by 10 or something else? Um, no. I did eight, eight to 12. So I varied it um, depending on, you know, how I was. Come on, let me fix this. We varied it depending on, depending on, uh, you know, how we were feeling. Like some exercises, I, if I was like, man, I want to go a little heavier then I went to eight reps and I literally, cause I'm not really tracking my weights as much right now because I know that they're crap. So I'm just going in and I'll find a weight that I know I can do. Um, what's it called? That I know I can do eight or 10 reps or 12 reps with. 
and then I'll just go with that. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so for you guys that don't know, Mike is fatigued, super fatigued. Um, he had some long hours he worked, um, but he's here on the show. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, so we, so I assume that he has a very simple study, not simple, very easy study, since <laughs> to make it easy uh, on the cognitive aspect. <laughs> this one is this one was like kind of a softball. This one was a uh, a very easy. It is an easy one, yeah. All right, man. So uh, since we spoke last week about adding in some more butter into your diet and stuff like that, have you noticed any improvements? I actually didn't tolerate it well, so I had to stop. <laughs> All right, what'd you notice? So consistently with me, butter gives me some intestinal irritation. Um, so I couldn't maintain, like I didn't keep using it. I did it for like a day. And then it... uh like it started to catch up with me as far as like the bile acid stuff. And so then I had to stop. So now I'm using uh mount back to beef tallow and, and macadamia oil and olive oil. And then we've been eating, there's been a lot of, uh, we've been eating a decent amount of guac, like guacamole because there's a, we're in Texas obviously. And uh, there's some, there, the one of the stores that we shop at has some pretty good, like, like pre-packaged guacamole so it comes in like these little packets and it's super delicious so i know it's not perfect for my omega-3 omega-6 whatever like it has a little bit of omega-6 in it but it's still it's still pretty delicious so i've been eating these little packets so i'll have like my meal will be like this like fish it'll flounder and i cook it with tomato sauce and some onions and like i make it really good uh, and then my my fiance makes it with like the cilantro lemon flounder, which is really good. And then uh, I'll have like a side of guac and then some raw carrots. And then like beforehand, I'll have like a, a fruit smoothie. So it'll be like strawberry with a little bit of mango and um, some pomegranate and pineapple juice. So a pretty good meal. Like I've been, I'm not going to lie. Like I have been eating pretty good. And over Thanksgiving, we had lobster and lamb. So that I was, I was pretty happy with that. <laughs> That's awesome. A quick, um, question did you know that lobster a few years ago was actually prison food i know i, I was actually reading that lobster and salmon in new england were <laughs> yeah. prison foods yeah. and people could not like people did not want to eat them and now it's like it's like a delicacy yeah yeah um i just want to give a quick quick um like an announcement before we continue with the show so last week we talked about vitamin d and getting someone on and i was thinking of having jack cruz on because he writes a lot about like sunlight, the importance of sunlight, vitamin D and that kind of stuff. So if anyone is in contact with Jack Cruz, um, maybe you can book us up, get in contact with me. I would like to have him on the show and then we can discuss all things sunlight, vitamin D and all that kind of good stuff. So, right, on with the show. Any new additions to your diet? Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, like, in, instead of trying to boost your adjunct just with butter, have you tried more yolks? I have tried more yolks. And I think that... I think that there was something, I think there's more something blocking, like having a slight blocking effect, less so than me, not like the me not eating something that will increase it. And I think like there's a combination of stress and work and all the hours and all that. But I'm wondering if one of the fat sources, like maybe if it was like, so actually what I was wondering is the, I put all my food into chronometer that I've been eating. Um, Cause it's not my normal like I haven't been eating how I normally eat 
I've been doing a lot of whey protein shakes and then my fat source was macadamia nuts. And then I was doing a lot of pineapple juice. Well, when I put it into chronometer, what I came to realize is that my manganese intake was ridiculously high because both macadamia nuts and pineapple juice are very high in manganese. Um, so what I was thinking may have been the issue was maybe I was getting too much manganese. So I've like, I cut the macadamia nut consumption down significantly. And that's why I started also using some of the, the guac and the avocado and whatnot. And then I do have my egg yolks, but I'm thinking that maybe it's, so I felt a little better after that. I was thinking maybe I was having too much manganese over an extended period of time. And then the other thing I was perhaps thinking is maybe like one of these more monounsaturated fatty acids has some type of um, like some component in them. Like usually from usually with nuts, they have a component in them that isn't a hundred percent ideal. Um, like for example, black seeds have like a pretty decent dose of estrogen in them or phytoestrogens. So I was wondering if, and I, if there was something maybe with macadamia oil or macadamia nuts, cause I was eating a lot of macadamia nuts. Um, but I didn't really find much of anything on that, but I was still going to trial a period of time where I will lower my, where I've been lowering my macadamia nut intake. So I have more like beef tallow, olive oil, and then the avocados, and we'll see how that goes. Um, but I feel like there was something like maybe blocking, but at the same time, it could also be all the work because it did start when I started doing like, you know, the 80, whatever hours of work or so. And I, as I was saying, I was like a little, I have been a little tired. So I'm curious if it's, if it's that. And then I also haven't gotten sunlight. I haven't been out in the sun very much at all. I have the halogen lamps, but it's still not this. It doesn't completely cover for the sun. So, mm -hmm. and I'm taking like topical vitamin D. So I'm curious if it's any of those things. Um, and we'll just see how it, we'll see how it unfolds. Yeah. Um, the first thing that if someone comes to me to increase like the antigens or energy or whatnot, it's always like, let's look at your diet. Let's look at your lifestyle specifically, because it's often um, what you can eliminate often have a much stronger effect than what you can add into the diet. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like the same thing with money. Now you, you will be more happy with less things actually than having more things with people think they can just fix with having more things, but actually you will all of that things is actually causing anxiety. That's a little bit off topic anyway. So, um, so what happened with the yolks, man? Like didn't do nothing. Did it make you feel funky? Um, that no change really. I I've been doing egg yolks for a while. So like I'll have like two egg yolks a day, um, or two whole eggs. Some for a while, while when I was working in the hospital, I was having four in the morning and that was like my breakfast. And now I do the shakes just because the time, like it's just, it takes too long to eat the egg yolks while I'm working. Like I literally don't have time to sit there and just eat them. Um, so I prefer the shake. So I stopped doing the four. So I'll do like maybe two at night um, when I come home from work. And yeah, it, it's not really a major difference. I mean, I don't know what else it could be besides it could be the stress from the work. Like it, I, there's been time, but the only reason I, I like a question that, is because I worked night shift for one and a half years and I was completely fine. Like I didn't, like I was tired, but I didn't feel any drop off in um, like androgens at all. So I don't know a hundred percent like what, what it could be the amount of work now. Cause then I was only working 40 hours a week and I didn't have clients and podcasts and all that stuff. I was just, you know, I had time to relax and unwind and chill. 
and now just like going, going, going. So, uh, I do still get time to relax, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm just <laughs> like, it feels like not long enough, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't hundred percent know what, what it is. And I've, my diet is pretty, like all of my bases are covered nutrient wise. Right. So even beyond, even outside of supplementation, my diet is pretty nutrient dense. It covers almost every single base except for vitamin D and vitamin E on chronometer, which are kind of difficult to get. And then, um, it covers all my, my minerals and my, uh, and then all the other B vitamins and whatnot. And then I supplement on top of that. So like my calcium, the phosphorus ratio is greater than one-to-one -one for calcium, especially on the days that I, uh, that I'm not having too much meat. Like if I'm doing mostly whey protein, my calcium and phosphorus ratio is pretty high. Uh, my, I'm hitting all my macros on a regular basis. So yeah, I don't know. I was wondering if maybe I was, it was cause of under eating a little bit. Cause I have been under eating a little bit, especially one thing I have been doing is I have been under eating a little bit in the fat department. Um, cause sometimes I'll like, if I, you can't eat too late on the schedule. If I try to eat at like 10 o'clock, then I won't be able to go to sleep at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Uh, or 11 o'clock or so because i'll have a whole bunch of food in my stomach and so then i'll like be up for a little while longer but i'm trying to go to sleep by 10 so i can still get eight hours because i wake up at six so i was thinking so then i'll do a shake that at that point and i won't have any fat in there and i've been doing that on a, on a regular basis so i'm wondering if i just went too low fat as well so i guess the options that i have on the table are fat source is the fat source causing an issue wasn't before though is it because I'm under eating in my, in calories or if my under eating specifically for fat. And that's definitely like, I've noticed an effect of that before where I dropped my fat below, I think like hundred grams per day and I could feel the difference. And then I guess the last one would be, is it, is it the stress from work? Is it just working way too much? And I guess maybe not getting enough sunlight, not being exposed to sun really. So I'm getting pale. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's impossible. You're Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to say there was a study, um, uh, yeah, given that the skin is a sterogenic organ, that the skin can account for about up to 50% of your total circulating testosterone and androgens. I thought that was quite significant. That's quite a large amount. So that definitely says that getting sunlight is like super important, but you were talking about vitamin E and uh, there was an interesting study that I have opened, I haven't read it yet, but they looked at like the metabolism of natural forms of vitamin E and the biological actions of the vitamin E metabolites. And just uh, like there's eight kinds of vitamin E and the tocopherols and tocotrienols, like four each, and they different go into different kinds of metabolites that have different actions. So if everyone, anyone wants to look at kind of like the complexity of the vitamin E system, so to speak, that, that's a good article to check out. I still want to go through it, but um, that was quite interesting because a lot of supplements, it's just like alpha tocopherol and it missed like mm -hmm. all of the rest and which have specific beneficial actions. And like when it comes to like natural sources in like out there, you know, in the wild, it always have like all of the sources, like in different ratios, but it always have like all of the tocopherols and tocotrienols. Yeah. And I always recommend at least getting a balance of gamma to alpha. So you don't deplete gamma with alpha, which has yeah. been shown to be problematic. Yeah. Um, but uh, back on the avocados, if you look at, if you believe in that thing, like what it looks like and what it resembles, then you can kind of like assume like the avocado will be beneficial for like either fertility or testosterone, you know, <laughs> if you get what I mean. Yep. 
not, yes, not just they do eggs, look like nuts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe you do notice some benefits with all the guacamole you're eating, but you know, so much variable since it's not just pure avocado, it's guacamole. Yeah, it's actually just, it's just like onions, avocado, and, and there's like very small amount of onion and then some vinegar and salt. So the ingredients are really good. It's, I mean, that's how I probably, that's how I make my own guac. It, like when I cut up the avocado, I probably would use like onion powder or garlic powder. And then I throw in uh, a little bit of vinegar and a little bit of salt and I would just mash it up all together. And that's how I would make it. So, yeah, yeah. there's actually a very awesome monounsaturated fat in um, avocados that has been shown to be very, very beneficial for improving insulin sensitivity, preventing the accumulation of visceral fat, um, just helping in general with glucose management. I think it was um, uh, like a diplomatic acid, but with a, with a double Palmetto, yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna it's give like it a try. It's an omega nine, right? The palmetto egg acid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking, like, you know, avocado is because, like, it, again, it's a natural source. Should you be avoiding avocado because it's high in PUFA? I don't necessarily think so because it contains its own natural antioxidants that can protect against it and whatnot. So, like, the, those PUFAs are protected. Versus if you would use like a refined avocado oil, I think that would be more problematic. But if it's maybe like an unrefined avocado oil, it's not as bad, but I'd still go for the whole avocado. Um, yeah. So even though you're getting a little bit more PUFA, I think that's probably fine because you're getting some vitamin E in the avocado. You're getting that's other true. antioxidants and other benefits as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm for me, even for my clients, especially people who have any type of gut irritation, I'm generally a fan of macadamia nuts, avocado, olive oil, um, especially for olive oil specifically getting like a really high quality olive oil. But I think all of those are great fat sources. If you talk, if like you're having any issues with cocoa butter, beef tallow, butter, coconut oil, um, if you're having any issues with those, like maybe trying to cut some of those fats with some of the monounsaturated so that you have more of a mixture, you know, maybe like, just cause I know that the changes that happen with the different fats with bile acids, depending on the person can cause issues and depending on someone's gut sensitivity, sometimes like coconut oil can wreck some people, like literally just gives you straight diarrhea if you're not used to it, or if you do it for the first time, like, for example, I don't tolerate coconut oil except excessively well. Um, but something like, you know, I've never had an issue with, with olive oil or macadamia nut oil or macadamia nuts or avocados. Those have always been fine. I don't, I'm not a super fan of avocado oil, as you mentioned, although I don't think it's terrible. I would rather, especially because avocados are so good to just have whole, like they're just tasty. They're always a good addition to a meal. Like they're very easy to do. You can throw them in smoothies, whatnot. So though, I think those are all great. Those are all great options for people. I would just, one thing is, is if you are going to use olive oil or avocado oil as your primary source of fats, you might take in a decent amount of omega-6 just because they, and it depends on the variety specifically for olive oil. Because some variety of olives have higher omega-6, whereas other have less. I think I talked about it. And I, th I think people are like, asking about which, which uh, Coratina olive oil I use. And the one that I used, I think I mentioned, was from a, a specific shop in Florida. It wasn't like a certain brand. It was directly from that shop. So I don't have a brand recommendation. I would say, you know, just make sure whatever, whichever one you're getting is high quality. It's not adulterated or cut with anything else, you know it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive, but with olive oil, that's important. So I would just go for the highest quality olive oil that, that you have available to you or that you can afford, whatever it is. Um, and go from there. A lot of, 
a lot of, there's a lot of brand names, like big brand names that they think the international olive council, or there was some organization that grades or looks at olive oil found that a lot of them were adulterated with other oils. So it's really important that you get a quality olive oil and then macadamia nuts. Um, I'll keep you guys posted on my experiments with those. <laughs> oh, man. So not to be poking too much into your personal life, but do you guys now suffer from couple pause? What do you mean couple pause? Couple pause. So couple pause is basically when a couple is having like either menopause or andropause, but it's when the, the two partners aren't anymore sexually attracted to each other. So you think you have low libido for the other person, or, or you just think you have low libido, but you're actually not attracted to that person. We, which couldn't be because you have like testosterone or dopamine, but because two people are not uh, sexually attracted to each other, you get couple poles so that they don't have a lot of intercourse. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's the, what is the cure for that? <laughs> I would say the cure would be to like, it depends, man, that, that could be vast because you have people that like when you're married, you're nice and thin and you're looking after yourself. But then as the years goes on, you eat junk food, you gain weight. Typically, you know, People don't necessarily find, uh, I don't want to be offensive, but you know what I mean? Like as the white pile on the desire goes down, that's basically what I'm trying to say. And then as you eat junk food, you have gut irritation, serotonin increases, that increases serotonin to dopamine ratio, it lowers testosterone, all sorts of stuff. Your libido in general goes down. Um, but a lot of people, when, especially when they watch porn, it's they look at uh, unrealistic images and stuff like that. And then they come back to real life to their partner. And it's like, well, you don't meet my expectations and like I have no libido. So I think that's, that, that's the thing with a lot of people out there is that they don't necessarily realize there is something like couple pause, you know, it's like, I have no libido. Okay. But you, you know, if you have morning wood, you are able to function normally, but like libido is, is a complicated thing actually. And it can be influenced by a lot of different things. What's your thoughts on that? I, um, I don't know if we have couple pause because neither both myself and my fiance eat very well. Um, so I don't, there's no like weight gain or anything on either, on either side of the fence. Both of us are, we are, we're not as like, I'm not as big as I was before. Right. Like I'm, I'm 195 pounds right now and I'm still like, you know, I'm still pretty cut and I still have a decent amount of muscle, but I've only been working out once a week. So I, the different, the only difference is I'm just not as full, I guess, in, in all of my muscles, um, for her, she hasn't worked out for, she doesn't really work out that much. I'm not going to lie. She wants to, but like all the work stuff, like she gets tired. But if anything, since we started doing all this dieting and what, well, not even dieting, but since she's been following like the, this paradigm that, which is a lot of juice, a lot of seafood, a lot of fruit, a lot of red meat, things like that. She actually slimmed down from when I first met her and she was already like pretty slim, but she like slimmed down in her waist. So her, her belly was, um, like shrunk a lot and she got like very tight and she got very defined in her stomach and she's maintained that and she doesn't really have to work out and she'll maintain her shape really well as long as we eat well. Right. So, <laughs> and we do, she, she's like super on board with all the dieting stuff. So we haven't had any problems with like weight or anything like that. I think what's more, what more likely happens is that both of us are on opposite schedules so I'm off today she, and, but she's, she's working and then I work tomorrow and she's off. So we've just been like flip-flopping back and forth the whole time. And then both of us, like whenever we're home, we're just tired. <laughs> so like she gets home and all she wants from work, all she wants to do is lay in, lay in bed. And then when I get home, all I want to do is just lay in bed or eat or whatever it is. 
yeah. we haven't had like we haven't had too much issues in that department but yeah since we've started working things definitely dropped off um i do think for guys maybe there's like a and i don't want to offend anybody but i think that there's like an element of like guys still crave novelty so you have like a biological drive. <laughs> That's for, exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a biological drive for guys for novelty. So it's like, and it had, I don't think a lot of people discuss it and I'm hesitant to discuss it because I feel like you can easily get labeled like sexist or misogynist or whatever it is. But I think um, like from my perspective, like guys will like, you can love your partner. Like I love my fiance and all that type of stuff. And, you know, I'm, I want to be with her and I want to have a family with her and all that. But I think a lot of guys ha- still have like that inert, innate drive for some degree of novelty. Just, it's just always there. And it's just something that, um, I don't know, I think that you always have to deal with as a guy, at least maybe in your 20s. I don't know what happens in your 40s and 50s and 60s. Because my dad, is, well, no, even my dad is the same way. And he's like 60 something. <laughs> I think what happens is so a lot of guys settle, um, you know, so like sometimes guys go for someone that they think is beautiful, but doesn't have necessarily a good personality. So they go for that person and then they can like realize like this is not the right person for me. So they settle for someone that has a great personality, but it's perhaps like a six, seven out of 10. And then they still, you know, that 10 still catches their eyes. And as you said, a lot of guys want novelty. And uh, also another thing that can happen is that you get used to doing the same thing. So if you do bicep curls every single day, you're going to get tired of doing bicep curls. Or if you're going to walk the same trail every single day, that trail doesn't become exciting anymore. Now, that obviously depends a lot on the specific person, his neurotransmitters, hormones and stuff like that. Because so I, I would say that someone that is high, high, high dopamine and high histamine, maybe uh, sympathetically driven as well, tends to be more of the... Um, uh, the, the novelty kind of guy obviously the, uh, dopamine promotes novelty so you want more novelty you want you constantly want something new whereas someone that's more parasympathetically dominant maybe with higher oxytocin they tend to be more loyal they don't look around they have no problem being aroused with a partner and doesn't look for that novelty so to speak they might still be very driven but it's not kind of like um n- not so much that novelty aspect so there's still that uh, difference so there's the guy wrote a book about it uh I forgot the name exactly, but he talked about this a small-ish percentage of people that are that driven type of people that have like the high dopamine, high histamine. And they're typically the people that also might tend to get addicted to things because they constantly want that new they want. So if you don't get that new, um, whatever it may be, you want to search for things that can give you that new. So maybe like uh, cocaine is like that high, that something that people crave. Ah, but you know, I, I'm constantly when I'm talking, I constantly think about like nuances <laughs> when it comes to these things. Yeah. Um, but let's say you do Parker and the environment is constantly different. The way you do flips is different. The, the combinations of flips you can do is different. So just because you do the same thing doesn't mean that activity is going to get boring because there's so much novelty in doing a specific thing that you do. So when it comes to weight training, you are perhaps always progressing. Um, and that's giving you that rushes of dopamine. You're feeling that the progress is being made, something new is happening. So that keeps you on track. So the, the thing is like a lot of people that's so driven when they do weight training and they don't progress anymore, like why the flip would I want to train anymore, you know? And then they quit and find something else. So I think it's definitely there's, there's uh, the different groups of people that have different reasons for what they do and what happened in their relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, do you think that there's a, for a lot of guys, there's, I guess it depends on your hormonal profile to some extent, but I feel like 
at least for my friends and a lot of people, a lot of my friends that I talk to, like that are they're in long term relationships, they still have that, they still have the that like novelty craving, even uh, and it has nothing to do with their like it's not like they don't want their relationship right, like they're very happy with the people that they're with, and they like get along really well and they're attracted to them and all that type of stuff. But it's like after a year, two years, whatever, that it's like that not like some of them like they'll, they'll talk to me, we'll talk about it, they're like they still have that craving. And the other thing too, is they're all in their twenties. So it's like 25, 26, 27, 28 year old guys. And it's like, they still like, that's the thing. They still love their partner and all that stuff. There's no question about that, but they still have that innate drive where it's like, man, like I wouldn't mind having two, <laughs> something like that. It's a, uh, is what I hear like from my friends consistently, but no, no one would ever, this is why I hesitate to say it publicly because no one would ever discuss it publicly. Cause it's just kind of like, you just quiet it. You just keep it down. Like, it's like, you're always constantly suppressing the drive. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you say. Unless they find a partner that feel the same way, which you also do get. Uh, but I wanted to mention, like, there are people, the, the, the thing that I see is that let's say someone is, we differentiate between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system. So someone mm-hmm. that's parasympathetically driven, it tends to be much more relaxed, confident. They go out and uh, they can also be very sexually active but they tend to have no problem in the sexual department, Um, you know, erectile function. um, They don't have premature ejaculation. They tend to have delayed ejaculation as well. This is the people Mm -hmm. that are uh, more parasympathetically dominant. Then you have people in that same group that are very loyal to their wife. And then you get other people that like to be novel. So, you know, it's like within each group, you still have branches of people that, so it's like, I don't think studies have really been done on these things. Like when they do a study, it's like, okay, these people have higher testosterone. So they blame testosterone. Well, that's not the case because there's so many different factors that influence, you know, different things. Yeah. I don't think it's just one hormone. I don't think it's just testosterone. Cause I've got my, there's been times in my life where my libido was low, like really low, but my testosterone came back high and my DHT was high and my estrogen was low. And my prolactin was pretty low. And like, I couldn't hundred percent figure out what was going on. Yeah. Um, so I've definitely had times like that. And then I've had other times where like my, my labs didn't look as good and my, my libido was insane. <laughs> so there's kind of like, you know, it depends. I think there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of like, it's, there's a lot of circumstances or a lot of flux and everything that goes on where, you know, different things that happen in your life will cause different things. And while you can maintain certain variables, right? Like I can maintain my, my dietary variables within a certain range and I can do certain, like I can maintain sleep and light exposure to within a certain range, but some things they just like, you make sacrifices in certain areas and just comes with the territory. Right. So like for me, like working all these hours and right now, like this is a big sacrifice and I like have, there are consequences to it in other areas of my life, which like, I knew going into it and I kind of just accepted it. It's like, this is just how it is. Yeah. So yeah, there, I think there's a lot of factors at play for, at least for, for that. There's one thing that I would like to add. And I think there's a lot of people might disagree with this, but it comes to porn, not that you go to porn websites and watch porn, but we are so surrounded by what they call soft porn, which is just bikinis and like, you know, still very revealing stuff. So it's movies, uh, Instagram, like all kinds of social media, YouTube is full of these kind of things where um, even women wearing tight clothes, it's like not even anything revealing. It's just tight, right? So a lot of men see this and then it's like, okay, that's different from what I have. 
I'm happy with what I have, but this is different. Hmm, that's nice, you know, or watching a movie, mm-hmm. it's like, that's nice. So if you actually eliminate all of that desires that is induced on you, you know, you will most likely not have that, those desires anymore. If you can like cleanse your brain, that sounds very religious, religious, but uh, like if you detox from those kind of stuff, you will start to really appreciate the person with, that you're with. And that, that's kind of like just my opinion, but I've seen a lot of evidence that kind of like supports that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. With my friends who I talk to and with the, like, there's not as much exposure to that stuff because a lot of them, a lot of, a lot of them don't, there's no social media for them. They're not watching too much movies and stuff like that. I think it's, I really think that there's like, maybe it's a different for different guys. Right. Like, cause I, there's, I have some friends who like, they find a girl and like, they're immediately in love and they're just like, <laughs> it's just like the end of the, it's like game over. Like they just, I'm going to be with this girl forever. Did all this stuff. Like they're out of control. Like they just, they can't control, they can't control themselves essentially. And then there's like, just with that one girl. And then I have, uh, like, a, I have another group of friends where it's like, they have their girlfriends and but they came from backgrounds where they were used to interacting with like multiple girls at the same time they don't really have that reflex where it's like they're in love with the girl it's more like the girl that they're with it's like yeah she's great i you know <laughs> i really like this girl we get along really well i'm attracted to her but they don't have like that i don't know like the that like super strong honeymoon response and i'm sure there's a like a hormonal neurochemical element to that uh, specifically um and i think the other thing i've experienced too and i've seen is if you've been like with a if you've been in a decent number of relationships and you like the more experience you have in those departments the more relaxed you become about things like the more they just become normal it's like some of these guys like they're going on a date they're flipping out they're this or that they're like some of my friends and then other ones are just like yeah we're going to go do this, whatever. <laughs> and then like, it was like, if the girl, if the girl that they were going to go out with, if she's like, not that into it or whatever, they're kind of like, whatever, like they just don't care because they've been through it so many times. So I guess that's like, there's a, there's that element as well, where you get accustomed to it. Like as you get more experience with it, you become more comfortable with it. You become more accustomed to it. So I've seen that as well. I've seen, there's like different, I've seen different groups. Cause I remember even for myself, like, the first my first like serious girlfriend in high school like I had that response where I was like that like you know that uh I think that it's like uh what's like uh I forget what it's called like in smaller and lower mammals they have like an imprinting response or something like that and so I feel like for a lot of guys there's like that first relationship is like whoa and then but for me after I like went through that relationship and then I had other relationships there was a like each one after that, like I had significantly less and less and less of that response. Whereas just like at that point, it's like, okay, <laughs> all right. Like I kind of just became super chill about it, very relaxed about it. And I wasn't, I didn't get worked up about it and I didn't really care about the outcomes anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't have that super strong, like I, like I just love this person so much response. Like that completely went away for me. <laughs> so I've seen that with my friends too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is very common, as you say, like, as you get more used to it, it's now going back to a different kind of lifestyle. But, you know, we can go so much into the middle aspect, into 
things that people might not agree with, like, oh, it's not scientific. Anyway, so <laughs> I don't necessarily want to go down that, but you brought up something, uh, anyway, uh, the social media aspect. So I just want to say that I've actually been embarking on a social media and just everything kind of detox for since Friday. So I'm going to continue until Friday for a whole week. So it's like no emails, no forum, no social media, no nothing <laughs> for a whole week, just detoxing. And um, I must say it's hard. Like it's, it's funny that you, you realize like in what um, like habits you were, you know, like it's so, oh, just check emails. Oh, just check emails. Just do this. That is like such a compulsive thing. And then you have to stop and it's like, you know, you can't do it anymore. And um, anyway, like if it feels really good to kind of like disconnect and it's like, okay, this is actually how I do want to live my life. Because like, if you're so con- obsessing with everything that does create a subconscious level of anxiety in a way, because you're, you're kind of like, okay, what's happening? Like, like I, maybe it's like FOMO. If I have to put a word on it, it's like, what's happening? I have to check. Like, is there some kind of important update? You know, there isn't that in... There isn't an important update, but you have to check because just in case, but there never is. Yeah. For me, I think like I notice clearly that I want to go on social media for when I'm like in either extremely tired and, and like I just can't like read higher order stuff. So like I'll go look on Twitter. I don't I don't really use a Twitter. I don't really have much social media, right? It's like I don't really look at too much stuff, but like I'll want that bite size you know, garbage content from social media where it's just like, you know, like one liners or, or like some, you know, like overinflated quote on something. Like I'll want to just like scroll through and read that stuff. If I've worked like a really long day and I cooked and I like, couldn't like sit down and, and cohesively go through an entire research article. So I've noticed that like, depending on my state, it'll depend on the type of information that I'm like able to digest or that I want to digest. So I like, I know that about myself. So like, I try to give myself like other source of information in those scenarios. But yeah, when I, I've noticed that when I'm cooked, like I'll be more likely to go on Twitter. Whereas, and I notice that more so now, because when I come home from work now, I'm, I'm extremely tired before when I was doing just consulting, like I was never on social media because I just didn't care for it. I wasn't ever tired and want to scroll through it. I was like, wow, this is a massive waste of time. So like all I wanted to do on social media was like post some article and like a cool picture that I found on Instagram. And then also like, like post some interesting line, like some interesting quotes from an article on Twitter, but I didn't want to read anyone else's stuff. I didn't care. I just wanted to post that stuff so I could like build up that base of information. Cause apparently you're supposed to have like all these different, <laughs> you're supposed to have all these different areas where you're putting out information to reach people, yada, yada, yada. So I was like trying that, but yeah, I noticed that my mind state will change what I'm, what I'm interesting, interested in, in listening to. And then as far as what you're talking about, with like emails and stuff. And I feel like the email thing, it feels like you're never done. Right. Like you owe it, like you're in your mind, like, Oh, I have to, I have to do this. I always have to do this. So like you have this endless list of ta- lists of tasks, not just emails, but like any of that, any of that type of stuff, like whether you're looking at your email manager, whether you're looking at, you know, so whatever it is, comments, all that stuff. Some, someone asks you something or PMs you on the forum. Like, so yeah, there, you definitely have to control yourself with that because if not, you're like always just emails, 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 emails. <laughs> and yeah. 
the thing is I actually, out of control. Yeah, I actually set a limit for myself before I took the detox, maybe for like a week or so. I set a limit. Okay, I'm only going to respond to emails once a week, but I'm still going to check it, right? <laughs> which is a big mistake because you, you check the email, you get that email, you read the email, which is selling. And you want to respond. <laughs> you you want to respond. So now you're problem solving, but it's like, okay, but I have to respond to it within a week, like next week. And uh, so now you're kind of like problem solving, you're r- ruminating on this. And it's kind of like, you're never actually in the present because you're always thinking of like, okay, I have to do this and this and this and this. And it's like taking you away from the present. It's kind of like taking away that appreciation and focus in the moment. It, it does create a little sense of uh, anxiety. So, and then when yeah. the time comes to answer emails, you have to read that email again to get the context. So you're creating more work for yourself <laughs> by checking emails so much. So going forward, I do want to set more limits to kind of like emailing. So no more checking, no nothing. So I, I think I want to go to, maybe like once a day or something, you know, still have to kind of like uh, answer relevant stuff. But you have so many people email you, it's going to be clients, it's going to be non-clients, it's going to be people that ask you just like random questions and you want to be treating everyone equally. And, you know, so it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's always that list, that to-do list that's never getting finished. But And so people see an email as like a chat room. So you send an email, I send an email, you send an email, I say like, <laughs> okay, this is enough, this is enough, exit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel bad too if I don't respond quick enough. Like that's something that bothers me. Like it'll sit in the back of my head. It's like, oh, it's almost 24 hours and I didn't respond to that one. And, but like you respond to like 10 other ones. You're like, oh man, I like, you feel like you can never, that's the other thing too, is like you have an endless list of tasks sometimes and you feel like you can never keep up. And then like when you do, when I do keep up when like, when I do get to everything and I do it like right on time and I like, I feel really good about it, but then like more stuff comes like, oh, <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely a balance to it. It's definitely something to get used to a balance that you have to maintain. And the thing is I like answering emails, but sometimes it does become a chat room where it's like you answer one question and there's another and then another and then another. And (laughs) and you're like, "Uh, I can't do all this right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the feeling sometimes. Yeah. I definitely want to set some more rules for myself in regards to not just email, but also social media. So it's going to be like whatever platform I'm going to be focusing on to grow. I want to, for example, schedule things for a week and then not go on there again because you're like, okay, how's this supposed to do it? How's this supposed to do it? And it's like, okay, this is my impression. Like you're obsessing over nothing. It's useless. You know, you can wait a week, nothing is serious is going to happen in that week. So yeah. I, I definitely want to schedule it like in week periods, like the things that are less important. So um, Twitter, for example, I'm trying to grow Twitter. So everyone goes <laughs> sign up Twitter, <laughs> um, release some content there. I find that I, I experiment a little with Instagram, but I felt like the engagement dropped significantly when I started posting more like scientific stuff on a frequent basis. So that's kind yeah. of like not the platform that people want to be reading scientific stuff. That's kind of like Twitter. So now I switch over to Twitter. I'm going to experiment there with some sharing, you know, whatever I want to share, grow that, but I'm not going to be in an obsessive way. I think if you want to grow on Instagram, you have to show like half naked pictures and like booty shots and booty workouts and stuff like that. <laughs> Unless you're Juji man. Have you seen Juji's channel? I have. I actually, I have. He's the guy. He's that huge bodybuilder that does all the flips and stuff. He's crazy, man. He, he always does some kind of crazy stuff, which is like bizarre. He does some bizarre stuff, like crazy. That's bizarre. probably why he has engagement there. Yeah, a lot of love games. So it's like entertainment. That's the thing. Like people want entertainment on Instagram. That's where they go on Instagram. So if you do the right things, you're going to get that engagement. Yeah. I don't Although, feel like. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I say, um, I don't do bizarre stuff, but I just can like share my something interesting that I did or some food. And that's kind of like not as frequent. So I must kind of like accept 
that I'm not going to be posting as frequently as Juju because I'm not like <laughs> as crazy as him. Yeah. For me, I was doing only research studies and then like, like visually appealing pictures, but it's still like the, I think it's slow. I think it's a slow buildup, but I do think a lot of people like for social media, like they are going for like lowest common denominator content where you're, it's not like, at least what, from what I can see, I feel like people aren't, they're not going there to learn something. They're, go, they are going there for that entertainment. They're going to see like cool pictures of this or that, or like someone doing something insane. And then on Twitter, I feel like people are going for some type of like, some type of like really washed out intellectual um, confrontations, right? Where it's just like people just are like the most interesting stuff on Twitter, like people arguing about things and, and like the most, but the arguments are like, kind of like, how do I want to describe them? There's like low quality arguments, right? Like a lot of people arguing about things from all these different perspectives. And so looking for like that controversy, that confrontation on there. Um, and then maybe like news, like interesting news that you couldn't, that you can't find in the mainstream. You find somebody like recorded and post posted it on their Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, it's the con- like what I think there's a difference than what, like a lot of the content that I feel like that we put out in the bioenergetic sphere is like mostly informational, like pure information, like how to do this exercise, which food to eat for this, like what the effects of this food on that, this study showed this, you know, but there's very, there's minute, I guess there are minor controversies in the sphere, like the whole vitamin D controversy. But the thing is, is like, but I feel like the general population, like the vast majority of people don't care about, you know, vitamin D and if, you know, it's effects from 125 OHD to 25 OHD, like most people don't even know they're (laughs) just like, why are you worrying about that, bro? Just, you know, I take my 5,000 IU pill in the morning and I'm set to go. (laughs) So it's so interesting how people, some people respond negatively to uh, like the polls, but there's a few reasons why, but actually some people also respond negatively to sunlight specifically when it comes to stress reactions. So in that case, I just recommend that people like limit their sun exposure. Like uh, usually when you get a stressor, you burn through your glucose stores really quickly and then you get a stress response. So um, what I recommend is like have some glucose and maybe some protein like gelatin or something before you go out in the sun, then limit that exposure five minutes, 10 minutes before you get a stress response, then get out of the sun and have more glucose to replenish that whatever's been depleted by the stress. And then you slowly build up over time because you will get more resilience. So then you can kind of like this week is 10 minutes, next week is 15 minutes and then 20 minutes. And you, and you really don't need more than 15, 15, 20 minutes, if sorry, 10 minutes if you are in a sunny place. Because even with 10 minutes, you're going to be synthesizing 15,000 IU vitamin D from that session. The poison D. Poison D. Poison D. <laughs> <laughs> That's so bizarre. Yeah, it's like all the indigenous people should be dead, you know. It's rat poison, Hans. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So last, I, I wanted to mention one more thing before I okay. give my last. Okay, so uh, the thing is, like, I've been finding Tutka very interesting. Like, I wrote an article about that a long time ago. But one thing that happens with COVID is that COVID enters the cell to the ACE2 receptor, and then it damages the endoplasmic reticulum, that specific area. It damages that area. Then you start to get uh, autophagy problems. You start to get more oxidative stress, and the cell becomes dysfunctional. So the cool thing is, like, okay, so this is especially in the intestine, in the testes, wherever you know, high amount of ACE2 is, and that's where you're going to get the damage. So Tutka inhibits the damage. 
to the endoplasmic reticulum. And that can then, if you suffer from COVID, basically spare yourself from the infertility or the drop in testosterone or the gut problems that you're going to get. So anyone that have perhaps long COVID symptoms or, you know, are afraid of getting COVID or have COVID, try some Tutka because that will kind of like inhibit the inflammatory response that you're going to get when you actually get that inflammatory response from COVID. Yeah. I know Tutka protects against ER stress, even in fatty liver. Yeah. And it's the, the, the coronavirus is causing damage in the e- in the endoplasmic reticulum because that's where it's replicating. Is that yeah. what happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the mRNA that um, gets put inside the genome is exported to the ribosomes at the ER. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, I read the study a while ago, so I'm not uh, got a little bit about the details. I just know the endoplasmic reticulum is where kind like it becomes damaged. That's where it causes problems. So getting the tooth gum might be really beneficial protecting against that. Um, the other quick point that I wanted to mention is that a lot of people say, like, okay, you want to have, you want multiple weeks, months to adapt to keto adapt. So I found this interesting study that showed that um, like brief five to six days of adaption to a low carbohydrate, high fat diet in elite athletes, increased exercise fat oxidation to rates previously observed in medium three to four weeks or chronic 12 months plus adherence to this diet with metabolic changes being washed out in a similar time frame. So when it comes to metabolic adaptions, you know, exercise and whatnot, you will get that complete metabolic adaption um, supposedly within one week, as long as you exercise the way you should be doing. Um, then you will be completely metabolically adapted in the muscles and whatnot. So I, on keto? Um, on keto, yeah. So without any carbs. So people's like, okay, you know, these people weren't performing as good because they weren't keto adapted. They need long-term adaption. But this study show you can adapt within one week. So the adaption in one week is similar to the adaption in 12 months. So, you know what I mean? So if your performance suffers on a ketogenic diet after a one week or two weeks, that diet is not doing you any good. You're not going to be keto adapting. What's going to happen is you're just going to be continually adapting to the exercise and getting better. So you're kind of like, so this was your previous baseline. Now you're going to this, this is your new baseline. It's not that you have to adapt to get back to this point. You actually have a lower baseline that you have to increase. So you would have to increase like this. But now you have a lower baseline. So keto is not ideal from an exercise standpoint. That, that's that a shocker headline. <laughs> is yeah. that the clickbait title? Well, I guess we could make it. We could make it better than that, right? <laughs> keto will destroy your gains. <laughs> there you go. I've actually mentioned this in the forum, and like people's like, "Oh no, that's not true." And but actually, there's some actually meta analysis on this already, showing that when you are on a ketogenic diet, you don't gain the same amount of muscle as you would we're having carbohydrates in the diet. And a lot of people are like, oh, you need more protein. You need more, I don't know what they, their excuses, but the point being is you can't really build that muscle as effectively as when you have carbohydrates. So of course you can build muscle, but not as effectively. And actually a lot, a lot of these studies, sorry, said that oh, go ahead. it's almost impossible to build muscle in a ketogenic diet. The study said that. This is not like real life experience that people do, but in studies they said it's, it's very, very hard to build muscle in the ketogenic diet. I think it's tricky for a lot of people though, because when they initially go on keto, they lose all this weight. And so it like a lot of it can be water weight and glycogen, which is a different story, but what they're essentially seeing is like they're leaning out and they're seeing their muscle now. So it's like, it's hard to gauge sometimes. Right. Cause it, I think like when you, when you were showing your update photos and you had, you were holding a little bit more body weight, some people like got on you a little bit, but I don't think people realize like you can have a significant amount of muscle <laughs> underneath, you know, 
underneath what if you have a, a like a layer of subcutaneous fat and if you look at a lot of the strongest men like the strong men and whatnot like even like think people like eddie hall um or even what was the guy the, the mountain they call him the mountain like they're not excessively lean and they do have a decent amount of body fat but first of all it's mostly subcutaneous fat if you look at them and then second of all they still have extreme amounts of muscle mass even even a, a clients that I've worked with who were obese and were, and I'm not saying you guys are obese or anything, but I had clients who were obese and they were at like 40, 50% body fat, but they still had 200 pounds of lean mass at five foot 10, which is a lot of lean mass at five foot 10. That's more than I'm holding, even though I'm lean. So it's important to, to, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Like just, even if you have fat mass, even if, especially if it's mostly subcutaneous, that that doesn't in, that doesn't say anything about the total amount of muscle mass that you're holding to a large extent. Yeah. So I, a lot of people go to keto and they get really lean. It's like I'm more muscular. It's like you know, now you can see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As you as you lean out, the mountains and crevices becomes more pronounced, and then you look more muscular. But uh, yeah, I'm as I mentioned, like as you all know, like I'm ripping at the moment. I think about two weeks have passed now. So each month I'm going to be doing update shots of how I look and how I lean down for everyone to see. I'll be posting this on the forum on my journey page. Um, but yeah, I think like I want to go down to 95. That's kind of like the goal. As I said, the goal is to do not jiggle <laughs> when I run. And <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that will be at 95, but ultimately I, I, I consider going down to 90. If that is the place where I will be non jiggly. It's not jiggle Hans. It's shock absorption. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, true that. Um, but uh, I'm the, also the reason why I'm really okay with going down the body weights because the calisthenics will get easier as you get lighter. And your sprinting should get a little easier too, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex constantly tells me that like, um, if I try, just go like at about 200 pounds, then I would basically be flying on the sprints because the heavier you get, you know, you, you still shave off of that fast time that you can, can get. Yeah, yeah. But I'm excited. So, sorry, what did you say? No, go ahead. Uh, the last update is that um, um, I'm having some MCT oil in my coffee. So they typically say this is the calorie-less food. So I'm kind of like experimenting with see how I feel. Because how I feel so when I drink coffee, that doesn't satiate me, doesn't blunt my appetite. Some people, it completely blunts their appetite. For me, it doesn't happen at all. So by having the MCT, I actually just started today. So it will be another two-week experiment to see if my weight continues to go down. So obviously with all this MCT, I will most likely not be in a deficit. But if I continue to lose weight, then it will kind of like confirm that you can still burn, uh, you know, lose weight while consuming a lot of calories. But it depends on what you are consuming. Like the MCT oil, it is not stored in the body. It doesn't require the carnitine transport to enter into a cell. It doesn't compete with glucose to be oxidized. And if you con uh, consume uh, the keto, uh, sorry, the uh, MCT oil with um, glucose, you can still actually produce ketones. So the scan likes will rev up the system. And when I have the MCT oil with my coffee, I definitely feel hot. Like I'm uncoupling, but um, I want to see like, and I'm drinking less coffee because I feel like more satiated in the process as well. But I want to see like what happens in the next two weeks. If my weight's not going down, I might have to eliminate that again. I'm just going to get myself some tea, like poo air, or oolong tea or something like that and for anybody out there who's thinking of trying mct just be careful because for some people you can get <laughs> what did dave asprey call it it was disaster pants 
yeah. it can give you loose stools and irritate your gut. <laughs> the thing is, I already have like three ta- tablespoons in. So if I suddenly have to quit the podcast, you know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, there's the heads up for anybody. If you see like there's a break in editing or anything like that, that was disaster pants for Hans. <laughs> <laughs> Run to the toilet. Hope my seal doesn't break. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't have, I don't experience any kind of this, uh, discomfort at the moment, but we'll see. Maybe it will be a little bit loose tomorrow, but uh, typically people do adapt. So I, I think yeah. my stomach tends to be relatively resilient. So we'll see. Anyway, you want to eat us up? Yes. Yeah, so I have a pretty interesting study today. I, some, I think people may have seen it before. Um, I think this has been floated around a little bit, but I went for, uh, for an easier one today. And it's uh, changes in consumption of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, excuse me, in the United States during the 20th century. And um, I was going to go through and do, like I highlighted a series of areas, but the best stuff to really look at is the graphs. And that's what I think is going to make the biggest difference for people. Now, I actually want to read through one spot here where, so... In the results section, I'm going to read through just a, a few small spots, but um, and then we'll, we'll get straight to the graphs. But it says the estimated per capita consumption of soybean oil increased great, a thousandfold from 1909 to 1999. The availability of linoleic acid increased from 2.79% to 7.21% of energy, whereas the availability of alpha linoleic acid increased from 0.39% to 0.72% of energy. So what we're seeing here is a thousand fold increase in soybean oil consumption, which is absurd. And then almost a three times increase in linoleic acid content or in linoleic acid consumption from 1909 to 1999. So, um, and they expand on that over here. And so that linoleic acid consumption came from a series of sources, but it was mostly soybean oil, canola oil, and chicken, a lot eating a lot of poultry. Um, and so they talk about here, the estimated per capita consumption of poultry increased almost 500%. So five times from 7.8 to 43.2 kilograms per capita per year. So per person per year. Um, and then they're talking about there was a decrease in butter and lard consumption and then an increased consumption of margarine shortening and beef tallow. Although if you look at the beef tallow consumption increase, they say it's 371% here the beef towel consumption already wasn't very high. So that 371% increase is actually, you'll see on the graph, it's not that big compared to the canola oil and whatnot. So they say after the market introduction in 1986, the estimated per capita consumption of canola oil increased 167 fold in 13 years from 0.01 to 0.8 kilograms of canola oil per capita per, per, uh, per capita per year. So they're almost big. It went from basically zero canola oil to almost a kilogram of canola oil per person per year. Um, and then the estimated per capita consumption of soybean oil went to 0.009 kilograms of soybean oil per capita per year. So almost zero soybean oil um, in 1909 to 12 kilograms of soybean oil per person per year in 1999. So 1,163 fold increase. They're saying that this is the the primary driver of the overall increase in, in oil consumption. So basically the biggest change in diets from, and we can see these on the graphs here, it's out of control. The biggest change in diet 
from 1909 to 1999 was largely an increase in poultry and a mass and a massive increase in shortening soybean oil and canola oil. Um, so essentially, since we've increased that, all of our heart disease has gotten significantly better. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, people are just living a great grand old time with no increases in cancer or cardiovascular disease or autoimmunity or anything like that. Um, we're actually a lot healthier thanks to soybean oil. I'm being facetious for anybody out there <laughs> who's listening. Um, so if we look here, this is kilograms per person per year on the left. And then we have the year. So we are looking at the trends over time on this first graph here, graph A. So what we can see is beef kind of peaked in the 1970s or so. And then it actually tailed down. So beef consumption dropped. But if we look at poultry, we went from nine kilograms per person per year up to almost 45 four kilograms per person per year. So beef consumption is dropping and poultry consumption is increasing. Pork consumption has stayed about the same place. I mean, it looked like it increased for a little, a little bit and then came back down. And then egg consumption is uh, slowly dropping. Um, fish consumption has been uh, actually, uh, it looks like it increased slightly. But, you know, not massively. We're still between four to five kilograms per year per person. Uh, seafood is, again, none of the seafood hasn't changed that much. The fish hasn't changed that much. Legume consumption has decreased. Nut consumption has actually increased by, it looks like, a, like, it looks like almost two kilograms per person per year. Um, and then lamb consumption has actually decreased, which is surprising because lamb is delicious. But <laughs> um, basically, beef has decreased. Pork has stayed the same. Eggs have sl slightly decreased. Fish has largely stayed the same, but poultry consumption has increased out of control. So that's the biggest change as far as protein sources go. We're looking at a massive increase in poultry. I was, so I just want to mention with the legumes, as you can see, the year is about 1939, which is roughly mm -hmm. like kind of like World War II. And yeah. we know that like pulses and grains and stuff as a long storage life. So that's typically what they refer to as poverty food. So poverty food is very high in the state of poverty. So it decreased after poverty. So a lot of people eating poverty food when they're not poor, take notice. Yeah. So what he's talking about here is this green trail here. You have 19, and this is where you start to see things start to pick up a little bit with the legumes. It looks like it starts to pick up in the 1920s a little bit. And then it's up and down and in around 1930 to 19 looks like mid 1940. So maybe 1945, um, which is towards the tail end of world war two. If, if I remember my dates correctly. Um, and then it like it drops off at 1949 and then it continues to trend down until the 1980s uh, where it only marginally picks back up again. So your hypothesis here, is that people were poor during the depression era and the world war two era. So they're eating a lot more beans, um, a lot more legumes. That, yeah, which... that's, yeah, that's what Pete also talked about. Like this is when the um, dietitians were kind of like taught, you know, that this is where the, all the food pyramid and everything came from, how the dietitians were taught, like this is the way you should be teaching people to eat because this is how they ate back then when they were in a poor state. Now everyone still think it's a good idea to eat like that. But it's kind of like poverty food. You want to switch over to kind of the rich food, which is milk, meat, 
fruit, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's, I think, a great hypothesis because you can also see on this graph here, pork precipitously dropped in that era as well. And beef also dropped in that period of time as well. Also eggs did. So it looks like all animal foods took a huge nosedive around that period of time, mm-hmm. which makes sense. You know, they were having like meatless Mondays and all that type of stuff <laughs> that we hear about. <laughs> um, so now if we come over here to the right, now we're going to look more at fat sources um, I think these are like the hard fat sources. And then on the bottom, we get into the, to the oils. Uh, so if we look at the biggest, the most obvious trend that you're going to see is shortening. So from the 1950s to the 1999 shortening increased from about f- almost three to four kilograms per person per year. And it looks like it peaked in the nineties <laughs> at 10 kilograms per person per year. Um, shortening is often a hydrogenated vegetable oil or some combination of vegetable oils and hydrogenated fats. So again, pretty much garbage for your health. Um, and we're, we're talking about like hydrogenated peanut oil or something yeah, so- like that. Something uh, hydrogenated col- canola oil, like yeah. just things that you don't want to be putting in your body. So and like then- something like tranny fat, I mean, trans fat. <laughs> yes. The, the <laughs> tranny fats. Um, <laughs> And then what we see here is butter precipitously dropped from 1909, where it was at eight kilograms per person per year. Um, it looks like it peaked in the 1930s a little bit, and then it like com- completely tanked to two kil- kilograms per person per year in 1999. Uh, beef tallow went from less than one kilogram per person per year in 1909 to about two kilograms per person per year in 1999. So while they say a 371% increase, this th- this two kilograms per person per year is is absolutely nothing. If we put 2,000 grams and you divide that by 365 days, you're talking about five grams per day of beef tallow per person. So it's an insignificant amount of beef tallow. It's a teaspoon of beef tallow per day per person. Um, whereas if you're looking at shortening, we're at almost 10 grams. So 10,000 divided by 365. So now you're looking at 27 grams of fat from shortening per day per person. So the shortening is you're, you're seeing basically <laughs> uh, the people are eating kind of a crap, crappy fats or, or unhealthy fats. And the same thing you see is margarine ticked up super high where it peaked. It looks like the eighties and nineties and then tailed off to the early two thousands. There was campaigns against margarine and shortening and whatnot with the trans fat stuff. I think that was from Dr. Fred Kumaro, I think his name was, who did the whole thing against trans fats. And once that happened, I think people's consumption of margarine and and shortening stopped. But it looks like it peaked at around five kilograms per person um, per year for margarine. So 5,000 divided by 365. So you have have plus 27. So between margarine and shortening, it looks like people are getting about 40 grams of fat per day just from those two. And let's, we're not even talking about canola oil or soybean oil yet. So you're seeing a drastic uptick in consumption of, you know, extremely unhealthy fats and a massive drop off of butter and marginal increase in beef tallow. But butter is tanked, lard is tanked, and then uh, beef tallow is marginally elevated, whereas shortening and and margarine are significantly elevated and also poultry. So we're seeing, and all these are high proof of foods, particularly omega-6. 
which is what they're basically discussing in this study. I'm just now, I'm just surprised that the beef tallow is actually up because yeah, like back in 1999, people were perhaps using beef tallow, like my grandparents. But nowadays, you, you don't get anyone using beef tallow. Like you know, that's kind of like what the grandparents used, not that modern people are using. So I maybe I can maybe second, but I feel like that has dropped off, perhaps again. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that it's dropped off because the continued vilification of of saturated fats. But I think there it may not have been that people were like using large amounts of beef towel to cook with. It may have been in some consumer products or it, it could have. That's what I'm assuming it was in some type of product. Because I know at one point, I forget when McDonald's changed, but McDonald's was using beef towel in their fries. So there's. Yeah, there we there need there's there has to be a greater historical context. This article is just looking at the statistical trend. I'm sure there was something going on because I don't know a lot of people that use beef towel. When I tell people beef towel, like what's that? <laughs> I'm like that's... it's like lard, but it's from a cow. And some people are like, <laughs> what's lard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's actually a great marketing campaign, man. Like high steric acid fries. <laughs> you know? Yeah, seriously though, Improve I'm sure there's much better. Yeah. I'm sure it was much better for, for people. I mean, I with the current agendas that are going on as far as decreasing meat consumption, I'm I'm sure that beef towel consumption is going to precipitously drop. So, because you know, it's better for the planet because cow farts or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, when we come over here to this next graph, we're looking at soybean oil consumption. So, in 19 around the 1970s, it was like two kilograms per person, and by 1999 we're at almost 12 kilograms per person. So we have about 40 grams of fat of, of margarine and shortening so far per person per, per day. And then we're going to take our 12 kilograms of soybean oil. So that's 12,000 grams divided by 365. And we're going to add that to 40. So we have 72 grams of fat per day right now from soybean oil, margarine, and shortening, which is a whole lot of PUFA <laughs> and a whole lot. There's a lot, there's, a, there's some uh, monounsaturated fat in there, but a whole lot of PUFA. And then if we add in the canola oil, which looks like it got up to about one kilogram per person per day, well, that's not going to add too much to there, but it looks like 70 grams of fat. And so if you assume a 2000 calorie diet, so 72 times nine, so 648 divided by 2000 calories, uh, you have about 30% fat diet. And it's mostly coming from soybean oil, um, shortening and margarine. And then you have to also consider the fat that you're getting in your poultry consumption. So we have uh, probably like a 40%, 30 to 40% fat diet, assuming 2000 calories are eaten. Um, and most of that is coming from like the worst quality fats that you can eat. <laughs> and so that's why I think heart disease has improved significantly in the United States from 1909 to 1999. <laughs> it's just gotten so much better over here. Um, and you know, obesity, this it's unheard of. Now we don't see any obesity here anymore. The soybean oil and the high omega six has cured it. We've lowered everyone's cholesterol and there's no obesity cancer and there's no heart disease now. <laughs> Such a victory. It, it was, it's a massive victory. <laughs> um, the other thing I want to point out here is that olive oil and coconut oil are literally almost at zero kilo, kilograms per person per year. Um, if you look at the oil section and then uh, peanut oil was also elevated at one point and it looks like palm oil 
was slightly elevated, but what this does, you have to look at the scale on this graph here. We're talking in fractions of kilograms. So these are the biggest intake we're seeing is really with soybean oil, shortening margarine and poultry, um, coconut oil, olive oil are non-existent and yeah. So the next, there's a, some more interesting graphs on here that I wanted to talk about. And this is in terms of percentage, um, of different intake in the diet. And so what we can see on this top portion is that the bulk of calories, it looks like in the 1909 time was about, was from grains, uh, very heavy grain consumption, almost 40% of the diet. Dairy looks like it was about 20%. It, that peaked in the 1950s with the, the 1950s seems like it had it going on, man. Like they were peaking with steak and they were peaking with, um, with dairy. <laughs> Lots and of celebrations. then yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out here that everybody is, you know, sugar is what's causing obesity and diabetes and all these diseases. It's just, you know, the, in, the consumption of sugar has gone from, I don't know, what is this? 12% to 15%. So we're assuming that a 3% increase in sugar consumption has caused all of these diseases. That's doubtful in my, in my mind. That's extremely on a 2000 calorie diet. So 2000 times 0 0.03 equals, okay, so that's 60 calories of sugar divided by four. So we're talking about an extra tablespoon of sugar on a 2000 calorie diet. That's what's causing everybody's diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. I mean, putting this into perspective, it doesn't make any sense to me when you look at those numbers, but um, so the grain consumption dropped off. You know, we can see that. The next thing I want to show is that again, soybean oil increasing precipitously as a percentage of the diet is almost at 8% of the diet in 1999, down up from zero in 1909. Um, and then you can see with poultry consumption goes to almost 5% of the diet. Beef actually peaks up and then decreases. And it's uh, about the same spot as poultry. Shortening is increasing to be, what do we have here? Almost 6% of the diet. And pork is actually underneath poultry by 1999. So again, soy oil, shortening and poultry trending up, everything else trending down, and then sugar marginally trending up and grain consumption trending down. So it looks like based on this, it looks like the bulk of people's diets by 1999 was grains. Dairy actually tanked off grains, refined sugars, and a whole bunch of crap, veg crap vegetable oils. <laughs> so not looking too good for... Um, for people's health. This is talking about the linoleic, the essential fatty acid intake as a percent of energy intake over the century. Um, I think Dr. Pete has talked about the threshold for health, healthy PUFA levels, right? I think he, his idea was to keep it below 2% of calories, which wound up being, I think four grams per 2000, four, four grams of PUFA per 2000 calories of diet, which is, we're actually in 1909, we're almost there. People's PUFA consumption was just under 3% for linoleic acid. And then the alpha linoleic acid was under 1%. The arachidonic acid was under 0.1%. And then DHA and, and EPA and DPA are under 0.1%. So overall, alpha linoleic acid, arachidonic acid, DHA, EPA, and DPA, and also linoleic acid are significantly less. They're, it, 
I would say it's probably close to all of these together to be close to, to 3% total. So people's PUFA content in 1909 looks like it was close to 3% of their, of their energy intake. Now, when we, um, when we come over here and we look, look at where things are now, DHA, EPA, and DPA, not too much changed. They look pretty much flat line. Uh, alpha-linolenic or ericodonic acid, again, not too much change, pretty much a flat line. Um, alpha-linolenic acid, marginal increase, but linolenic acid, now we're almost at, we're at 7 to 8%. So massive increases, massive increases in the linolenic acid, which again, you know, that heart disease is just, man, that obesity, I don't, I don't think you guys are going to get tired of me talking about how good <laughs> it's gotten over this past couple of decades. Um, and then they come down here and they, they want to look at the increases in the sources of linoleic acid in the diet. And what we can see here is it is largely soy oil. <laughs> so the soybean industry really, you know, they must be making good money now. Yeah, like <laughs> Things have it. really kicked up drastically over the, the century. You can see where, well, for alpha linoleic about, or for linoleic, about almost 50% of that is coming from soy oil. So the soy oils, I think the largest culprit, and that's why some of the easiest interventions that people can make in their diet is to just stop using vegetable oil and just move over to butter, to beef tallow, to chocolate, to macadamia oil, to olive oil, all, all of these other fats that are, are much safer, have more significant health benefits and don't, aren't super high in linoleic acid. Um, so, and then there's some tables here that showing the, can, the percent contribution to linoleic acid. And then they're showing percent difference. And when we come over here, the, the largest, the largest element here is soybean oil fats. So that's talking about the margin, margarine and shortening and then poultry. So those were the three culprits that we discussed earlier. Um, and then also pork, but actually pork consumption actually decreased. The last thing that I want to show, I don't, this is again, just the essential, the other essential fatty acids, ericodonic acid, it's showing what their sources are. The last thing I want to discuss here is this graph here, which is really interesting. Um, what they showed, and this is things that, you know, Hans had pointed out, but they put they showed the years that, okay, so we have World War One, World War II. Um, there's different, uh, different laws that they put in or different advisories, like the American Heart Association Advisory. So this is talking about consumption of linoleic acid or, or polyunsaturated fats as being helpful, um, reducing cotton production. So they're looking at a whole bunch of different markers historically or time period, time marks historically that have led to the increased consumption of these different oils or decreased consumption of different oils. Um, and then as Hans pointed out earlier, they put in world war one here and world war two. And it looks like world war one started around 1940 and then ended around 1945 on this graph. Um, or it looks like it started in 1941 and then in 1945, see it here. And then you can see the change in trend in consumption of soybean oil and whatnot. So the biggest thing I want to point out here is you see the American Heart Association advisory in 1961, and then you see this uptick in soybean oil. 
And then you see they reduce cotton production. And so when you reduce cotton production, well, you have all this land that you have to grow stuff on. So what are we going to grow? We're going to grow soybeans. <laughs> and that's, that's where you see this is where it picks up. Oh, look, soybeans are increasing. Um, so then you have these uh, guidelines for nutrition. Soybean continues to increase. More dietary guidelines. Soybeans continue to increase. And, then, and that's what you see as recommendations in these guidelines is saturated fat should be less than 10% of calories. Grain should make up the bulk of the diet and you should, the vast majority of your fats should come from omega sixes and polyunsaturated fats because they're heart healthy. And so it's just interesting to see this, these different timelines and then the trend in soybean oil consumption, um, especially compared to the other oils. So as you can see, coconut oil after the, um, American heart, association advisory coconut oils just like by 1971 and we're at zero just become absolutely nothing olive oil again at the bottom of the barrel here soybean oil just precipitously rising so i think we have some idea of the culprit behind obesity diabetes heart disease um and a lot of these chronic diseases especially if you consider some of these trends but I really think that the biggest culprit here overall is going to have to be the 3% increase in, in sugar consumption. So I think that we should all go on keto diets. That's, that's my biggest takeaway from the, <laughs> from this paper. At least, at least you're going to adapt in seven days. True. I think we should go on plant-based keto diets that are high in vegetable oils to protect our hearts. And phosphorus and non-heme iron. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and add in some iron Chinese. Um, but it was interesting um, how they talked about, or they showed in the graph that the coconut oil tanked. So that's kind of like when Ansel Keys, I think, maybe it was around that time where they said like fat's bad, specifically the saturated fat. So the first fat that they eliminated was coconut oil because that's the one that's the highest in saturated fat. And at, like some, a few years ago, there was this massive coconut oil craze. So it's funny, like that was the biggest culprit. And now it made like this revolutionary return, like the first saturated fat source that it brought back. It's, it's kind of like funny, like there's two opposites. But uh, now yeah. people say like, okay, well, coconut oil is good for you, but all the other saturated fat is still bad for you. Yeah. It's kind of silly, it, right? That, that always makes me laugh too when they talk about like, like even in the research, it's like, well, this lard is a high saturated fat. And it's like, okay, it's also high in PUFA and MUFA. It's like, yeah. if you look, because... If you look at all the different fatty, like all the different fats, like even beef tallow, like beef tallow is mostly monounsaturated fat. <laughs> I think it's like 40% monounsaturated, like 3% polyunsaturated, and then the rest is saturated. So it's largely monounsaturated. And a lot of their narrative is for monounsaturated fat. So if anything, and then the other thing too, is beef tallow is quite high in stearic acid as a saturated fat and stearic acid in the literature is actually been praised as being cholesterol neutral. So it's like you can't vilify beef fat for being a high saturated fat when it's mostly monounsaturated or largely monounsaturated, which is according to their narrative beneficial. And then on top of that, the, the one of the main saturated fats that it has is stearic acid, which is also considered cholesterol neutral in the literature. Mm. So it's just, it's like, it doesn't even fit their own narratives. And same thing with chocolate. Same thing with chocolate, like chocolate's fatty acid content is mostly or largely monounsaturated, low PUFA, and then it's very high in stearic acid. Yeah. So the biggest culprit that I guess they can say something about is butter because butter has a 
and even with butter, like it still has monounsaturated fat. It's quite low in PUFA. And then the, the FDA reversed their stance on cholesterol to a large extent where they said, okay, the cholesterol isn't necessarily culprit. It's saturated fat, but then butter's palmitic acid content isn't that high compared to some, some of the other fats. So I think the worst one from them for them would probably be palm oil. (laughs) I don't think they have any leg to stand up because they already redeemed coconut oil. And there's so many studies that shows that full fat dairy specifically and dairy fat has very good health benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a whole article on like the benefits of dairy fat specifically. So now like, okay, so saturated fat causes all kinds of problems, but that excludes coconut oil and butter. (laughs) And we're talking about the benefits of like beef fat because of the high steric acid content and all of the other fatty acids. So that leaves us with saturated fat, not bad. But I actually wanted to talk about, uh, I actually wanted to show studies of specifically this topic, how they discuss is that saturated fat is not the bad guy. But if we completely forgot, I'll probably do that uh, next week. And I also didn't okay. get time to um, look at the evidence and the biotin absorption that we discussed last week, I forgot, and I'm taking a detox. So I'm kind of like... <laughs> not doing much <laughs> so i have so you're just you're just do- drinking juices right you're on a juice detox <laughs> <laughs> uh no actually i'm having no de- uh no um juice at all actually but oh, really? actually i'm having a little bit i'm having about a cup because as i mentioned my weight's dropping actually quite fast and i don't want it to drop too fast but now i've added a little bit of juice and some um uh mct oil so, you know, I don't want too many variables. So I'm still limiting my calories to about 2,500, 2,600. And I'm going to see what happens. But, uh, yep. Anyway, let me dive into my study. Let me see if I can find it. So there's this interesting one that looked at the role of autophagy and thyroid hormone in the pathogenesis and treatment of nephilim. And a lot of people associate autophagy. I'm just going to say autophagy, you know, because like, it's faggy and it's like automatic faggy. That makes the most sense to me, right? <laughs> so, because it automatically eats whatever. It's like, that, that makes a lot of sense. So autophagy is usually associated with fasting. And thyroid is associated with non-fasting because fasting lowers thyroid hormones. But the interesting thing is like this study talks about how thyroid hormones promote proper autophagy and is helpful for the treatment of nephilim. The sad part is that they only have one study where they use thyroid and they only use D4 for the treatment of nephilim, which I, it was also a small dose of D4. And the problem I have with that is, and I'll discuss the details in the study, is that the enzymes that convert D4 into D3 is being downregulated in nephilim. So T3 is the active form, but they give the people the inactive and they want the people to automatically convert as they need T3, but the liver is compromised, so they can't actually produce enough. Regardless, they actually did find benefits by using only D4. But I'm just trying to say like, you need D3 to have the specific benefit. So um, just gonna talk a little bit about the background of NAFLD and then I'm gonna talk about like autophagy, you get autophagy, you get mitophagy and uh, lipophagy. And then I'm gonna talk about the thyroid. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common prevalent chronic liver disease worldwide. It compromises, um, comprises simple steatosis and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver which can further progress to seriosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. So you talked about this last time, is that just because you have nephilim doesn't mean you have liver inflammation, um, but that the fatty liver can progress into something, into inflammatory state, which is the NASH. 
then we discuss how thyroid hormones simultaneously regulate lip, uh, regulate lipophagy, mitophagy, and mitochondrial biogenesis, biogenesis to increase beta oxidation of fatty acids and reduce steatosis in the liver. So other known causes of liver steatosis, such as viral hepatitis and medications, I'm just reading this because I found it interesting, was tamoxifen, which a lot of people use, I think, as, um, like I said, estrogen blocker, supposedly, but it does have estrogenic properties, actually. So that can cause NAFLD and, like, liver problems. Amiodarone, which is the... Amiodarone. Um, yeah, a, a heart... Antiarrhythmic. Exactly. Thank you, my nurse. We use that every day. <laughs> I literally give that to people every day in a drip. <laughs> and then we have methotrexate. These names is just <laughs> methotrexate. Methotrexate. Yeah, man, you're 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 on top of your shit. So it's basically I give yeah. these drugs almost every day, man. <laughs> that's a that's a cancer medication, right? That's the last one. That or rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, because it's the, uh, it suppresses the immune system, right? Uh huh. All right. So <laughs> it's good to have a nurse on on board. You make you make me embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna leave the name the name um the naming to you so i'm just gonna okay. like talk and then blank and you just fill it in for me like as i go along <laughs> sounds good i got you covered <laughs> all right so the presence of of nash and fibrosis are also strongly associated with increased risk of cardiomyopathy and arrhythmia chronic kidney disease sarcopenia and other extrahepatic malignancy so i talked about last time um the sarcopenia that if you have fatty liver and it progresses to something worse that can result in uh, sarcopenia and muscle loss. There's an inter-organ communication between the liver and like the muscle and basically all organs. Uh, so going forward, we have autophagy, we have lipophagy, and we have mitophagy. I just uh, highlighted a bunch of stuff so I can look smart and we can just go on. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. So this is actually interesting. Autophagy also serves as one of the main mechanisms to remove damaged organelles, such as the mitochondria, peroxisomes, lysosomes, and the endoplasmic reticulum, and degrade them into small molecules that can serve other cellular functions to lead or lead to resynthesis of organelles and formation of new structures within the cell. So it's basically, it breaks down with the structures into like amino acids, fatty acids, those kind of stuff that the body can reuse again. That's the normal function it's supposed to have. There are approximately 20 autophagy-related ATG proteins that subsequently participate in the formation of the phagospores and their maturation in the autophagosomes that fuse with the lysosomes to form autolysosomes. So um, I think they also talk about like the whole process of autophagy starts in the endoplasmic reticulum again. So this is where Tutka can be very important because like if you have damage in the endoplasmic reticulum, there won't be sufficient or proper autophagy going on. And then you have like an accumulation of damaged cells and stuff. So Tutka can help actually with autophagy. So maybe using thyroid with will be very beneficial for solving your liver problems. Before you go on, I just want to mention that one of the mechanisms of omega-3's lowering of LDL cholesterol or VLDL cholesterol was by causing um, issues inside the endoplasmic reticulum with apoprotein B100. So just something to, to, and the other thing is they rescued that by providing either vitamin E or providing an iron, uh, desferoxamine, which is an iron chelator, uh, just yeah. for people to understand. So eating ridiculously large amounts of polyunsaturated fats, especially highly unsaturated ones to lower your cholesterol may not be a good idea for your endoplasmic reticulum. <laughs> yeah. 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 Terrible, man. Like this proof are dangerous on multiple levels. 
So we have lipophagy. So autophagy plays an important role in the utilization of stored lipids that are critical for supplying fuel to generate ATP. And then additionally, so this autophagy is basically lipophagy, the breakdown of the fats, lipophagy, breakdown of fats. So additionally, decreased lipid oxidation and increased theatosis occurred in cultured hepatocytes as well as in mouse liver when autophagy was inhibited. So you have the increase in lipid storage in the liver when there isn't sufficient autophagy going on, suggesting that this was a key mechanism for converting stored triglycerides into free fatty acids in the liver. Um, and then we go on. Additionally, natural compounds such as green tea, polyphenols, that's you, or caffeine, that's me, that stimulates <laughs> autophagy, also reduces <laughs> hepatosteatosis. Awesome. So we're both on the right path, man. <laughs> awesome. So uh, mitophagy, which is just a, basically the breakdown of mitochondria, Mitophagy is a critical quality control process to eliminate mitochondria damaged by ROS and prevent the initiation of an inflammatory response or apoptosis. So first of all, you don't want to eliminate ROS. ROS is still very important for natural processes signaling, like insulin signaling, for example. So you need ROS, but access ROS is best. And especially if like there is a lot of polyunsaturated fat in the vicinity or in the cell membranes, especially along the electrotransfer chain where the, or most of the ROS has been produced, that's going to cause a lot of problems. So this regulation of autophagy in NAFLD. So patients with NAFLD have impaired autophagy. First, there can be decreased autophagosome and lysosome fusion due to the increased expression of Rubicon, a negative regulator of the autophagosome lysosome fusion and decreased expression and or function of the autophagosome lysosome fusion snare complex. So lysosome function can also be impaired due to decreased level of lysosome protease leading to decreased lysosomal degra um, degradation. So de uh, impaired degradation of fat, impaired proper autophagy, the closure, basically what they're talking about, impaired fusion. Uh, additionally, autophagosome biosynthesis, biogenesis itself can be impaired proceeding in the conjunction with late-stage autophagy block. So here they have a graph. So this is the whole process of basically autophagy occurring. So you have kind of like the lysosome biogenesis, which is then combined here to create the autolysosome to ensure the proper degradation of all that dysfunctional material. So here we can see NAFLD. Yeah. I was going to say that just so people can understand the autophagosome is that the prior, uh, I don't know if so this section here starts to get formed and it's kind of like a pinching off of the, of the membrane with the damaged organelles. So it looks like there's like what, like a mitochondria in there or something. Yeah, yeah. And then what they do is they produce the uh, lysosome, which is like packaged enzymes that bind together with the autophagosome. And when those enzymes get inside, they basically degrade all the organelles that have been damaged and break them into their smaller constituent parts and then it's as they can recycle them. So this this process isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's part of the re, of a renewal process from these damaged pieces. But uh, you'll get into the next one for the NAFLD piece. Yeah, yeah. So all the processes are being inhibited in NAFLD. So this 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 is like one process. This is the combination of another process. So you can see NAFLD. There are multiple processes that are being inhibited. So mostly all of the processes are being inhibited in FLD, in autophagy. So it's, it's a complicated process and all of the steps become basically dysfunctional inhibited. 
All right, so recent data also showed that impaired mitophagy led to formation of mega mitochondria that could contribute to injury, liver injury during NAFLD. These studies demonstrate that impaired autophagy is one of the main molecular mechanisms that contribute to NAFLD progression. So this is uh, important because this, um, what happens like with mitophagy is that the cell, the mitochondria, is basically a chunk has been eaten off, so you have smaller mitochondria. So then you have, so the dysfunctional piece has been bitten off, I can basically say this. So now this one is being gotten rid of. So you have a smaller mitochondria and then you have another smaller mitochondria that's working properly and they can fuse into a normal one again. So the, the smaller mitochondria is not optimal. The bigger ones are, but they can get the mega mitochondria, which is obviously not good as well. You still need proper mitophagy to chew off the bad stuff. So these mega mitochondria have a lot of defects in them that produce a lot of ROS that's going to create the liver injury. So there's a delicate balance between the fusion and the fission that needs to work properly. All right, so here we got into the thyroid hormone effects on impaired autophagy and FD. In the liver, thyroid hormone regulates genes involved in a diverse range of metabolic pathways, including hepatic lipogenesis, lipid oxidation, cholesterol homeostasis, and gluconeogenesis. So this cholesterol homeostasis is important because a lot of people, when they have high cholesterol, it usually indicates they have low thyroid hormone. But the interesting thing is like, if the thyroid hormone, the cholesterol is also too low, that can also indicate they don't have enough thyroid. So thyroid helps with the synthesis, the cholesterol homeostasis basically is what they're saying. So that was interesting. Sinha et al. also showed that thyroid hormone is a potent stimulator of hepatic lipophagy in cultured hepatic uh, cells and mouse liver. So it stimulates the breakdown of fat. A lot of people, especially in the rapid community, think that fat oxidation is bad, but thyroid is one of those things that really speed up fat oxidation. You don't want those lipids to accumulate. It's a natural process. So thyroid hormone T3 also promotes hepatic mitophagy as evidenced by increased engulfment of mitochondria inside autophagosomes and autolysomes in mitochondria micrographs. T3 increases the expression and activation of ULK1, which promotes DRP1-mediated mitochondrial fission. So you need proper fission, as I mentioned, to prevent that mega mitochondria, and you need thyroid hormone for that. T3-mediated induction of mitophagy is essential for its stimulation of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. So the ability to break down that fat, uh, basically in the, uh, the Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, produce energy. Otherwise, you just have fat floating around. You don't actually use it to produce energy. Concurrently, T3 also increases mitochondrial biogenesis. More mitochondria means uh, more energy production, more better utilization, utilization of the fat Thus, D3 generates and maintains an intracellular pool of healthy mitochondria to increase mitochondrial activity and beta oxidation of fatty acids by increasing the rate of mitophagy and mitochondrial synthesis, mitochondrial uh, trans turnover. So, uh, interesting that I want to point out is that there is actually substances that can promote mitochondrial biogenesis. But if you have that dysfunctional mitochondria, that semi-dysfunctional, and that is being produced, you have more dysfunctional mitochondria. But the thing with T3 is it doesn't just promote mitochondrial biogenesis. It actually promotes mitophagy that chews off that broken part. And then you have a healthy mitochondria that can be properly replicated. So that's why they say they have a, it increases the intracellular pool of healthy mitochondria. Okay. The activation of the autophagy and mitophagy pathway by T3 is mediated by mitochondrial ROS production. So as I mentioned, you need ROS. It stimulates the autophagy and mitophagy pathway. Indeed, in cultured hepatic cells, thyroid hormone simultaneously increases mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, mitochondrial ROS generation, and membrane potential. Thus, low levels of T3 induce ROS, 40% increase compared to untreated cells. 
are not toxic, but uh, actually serves beneficial role in cell homeostasis by acting as signaling molecules to increase cellular calcium levels and activate CAMKK to AMPK signaling. So another thing is like a lot of people think activation of AMPK is bad because stimulates fatty acid oxidation is not bad because thyroid stimulates it. So this is kind of like um, similar thing if we talk about like serotonin, for example, you know, so serotonin is bad on the forum, but did you know sunlight increases it, vitamin D increases it in the brain. So it's not like this is universally bad. So beneficial things that are PETA proof can also have negative effects by increasing serotonin. The reason I'm saying this is not because it's negative effects. And there's always a balance. I'm not trying to say serotonin is good. Um, it's just that certain beneficial things like vitamin D can increase serotonin or um, thyroid can increase fatty acid oxidation. There is a balance and need for everything. And um, yeah. Something that's interesting here is that they're saying um, lower T3 induced ROS. Yeah. So like a lower amount of oxidative phosphorylation from like a, a lack of T3 induced ROS and then by by increase and that was a 40% increase so the 40% increase in ROS triggered a hormetic pathway which was the AMPK signaling and led to the increase in in calcium the calcium levels yeah right so they're what they're saying here so what this is showing is that having adequate mitochondrial function which can be to some extent a proxy is saying having adequate T3 actually lowers ROS production because the mitochondrial are functioning normally. And then the T3, based on what I'm getting from what you're saying, is the T3 is actually it increasing the degradation of negative or damaged mitochondria and then increasing the production of beneficial or working mitochondria. So having so they're I, I think they're setting the stage here for using T3 um, as therapy for fatty liver. Because essentially what the fatty liver state at least from what I can see here is from this article is the fatty liver state is like an essentially an increased amount of damaged mitochondria and damaged endoplasmic reticulum cells inside the liver that can accumulate over time. And then that essentially leads to inflammation. And then eventually over time, as those cells die or undergo necrosis or apoptosis, because they're so jacked up from all that amount of damage that it moves into the fibrotic cirrhotic stage and then from the cirrhosis, you get hepatocellular carcinoma, which is cancer because of the significantly deranged cells that are left. It's like they're, they either become fibrotic or they're just like seriously deranged. But this is describing the processes of what goes on specifically from like mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I messed up talking about um, T3 inducing AMPK, but there are other studies that show that thyroid hormone does increase AMPK, but the study shows that low T3 induces AMPK. But T3 itself can actually also upregulate AMPK. Well, what they're saying is that the low T3 increased ROS, and then that ROS signaled AMPK. My so bad. Was actually, I was right. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to correct. I'm not correcting you. Yeah, I yeah. was just saying, what, like, I'm not even like, I'm not correcting you because I think, I don't think that you're, you're wrong in what you said. What I'm just, all I wanted, I was pointing out here something tangentially separate that it was that the, the having low levels of thyroid hormone function or having low levels of oxidative phosphor oxidative phosphorylation actually increases ROS. And this goes against the rate of living theory hypothesis where you want a lowered metabolism because the lowered metabolism will slow your breakdown of X, Y, and Z. But what it's actually showing here 
is that an increased rate of metabolism or, or well, two things. If what it's showing here is that a lowered rate of metabolism is increasing ROS or increasing damaging compounds that has to trigger a hormetic pathway to basically recover the damage. However, what you're showing on the, if you scroll up a little bit, that the increased os oxidative phosphorylation from T3 on the mitochondria actually increases mitochondrial healthy mitochondrial production and increases the breakdown of damaged mitochondria, thus overall increasing mitochondrial turnover. So having adequate uh, metabolism, having adequate oxidative phosphorylation is actually the key here to solving the problem because it lowers the ROS. And while it can increase ROS to some extent, it seemed like that the lowered T3 levels and lowered oxidative phosphorylation increased ROS to 40%, so almost 1.5 times, which is a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's beautifully explained. Um, I also wanted to mention that the T3 can increase uncoupling, which is also a way that it uh, in, um, basically lowers ROS. So there's multiple ways that it can be beneficial against uh, basically the ROS causing oxidative stress. But as I said, like ROS acts as a signaling molecule, as you also said. Yeah, there's an amount. It's not that you want zero. Yeah, yeah. So um, interestingly, T3 also induced expression of several proteins that contribute to the induction of lipophagy and mitophagy mitochondrial biogenesis. So estrogen-related receptor alpha is an orphan nuclear receptor that is transcriptionally induced by T3 in a PGC-1 alpha-dependent manner. So I thought that was quite interesting that uh, the T3 can increase a type of the estrogen-related receptor alpha. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Apart from T3, other thyroid hormone uh, metabolites such as T2 also mediate hepatic, hepatic autophagy, but that's not important to, you don't have to supplement T2 because your body can automatically convert T3 into T2. I just wanted to mention that. Or you could take desiccated thyroid, which I think has both. Yeah, yeah, like there's so many metabolites actually of the thyroid hormone. So it will have all of those. Uh, both thyroid hormone and mitophagy inhibit the overactivation of NLRP3 inflammasome. NLRP3 inflammasome is an intracellular multiple complex activated in response to pathogen associated molecular patterns or damage associated molecular pat, uh, pat, patterns to increase secretion of pro inflammatory cytokines. So, loss of this pathway results in exacerbated endotoxin induced liver inflammation and damage. So this study, or at least they're basically show, showing here that T3 protects the liver against endotoxin-induced damage. And the lower T3 levels you have, the, the worse endotoxin is going to wreak havoc on your liver. So T3 downregulates the expression of microRNA31, uh, 155, and triple 2 to increase the gene and protein expressions of superoxide dismutase and 1 and 2. So another way that it prevents damage from access reactive oxygen species which then decrease ROS levels and prevent excessive activation of this inflammasome. In addition, T3 downregulates the endotoxin receptor, toll like receptor 4, uh, NF-kappa-beta pathway to decrease inflammation. So overall, it not only improves mitochondrial function, it prote protects against ROS, it protects against endotoxin-induced liver inflammation, and it lowers this basically um, NLRP3 inflammasome, which so, is involved awesome. in molding. Sorry. Yeah. Well, the whole pathway is awesome with, with T3 because it's increasing oxidative phosphorylation and, and then thus lowering reactive oxygen species to some, to some extent if you, were, if you had lower oxidative phosphorylation. And then it's increasing the antioxidant enzymes that clean up ROS. And then it's also the, NL, the NLRP3 inflammasome, they said was increased by um, pathogen, pa the pathogen patterns and then also the damage patterns. So what 
for anybody out there who who like doesn't hundred percent know what that means. What they're talking about is the the immune system will pick up um, different sequences. So, like for example, if your cell is damaged or your mitochondria is damaged, if the immune system gets a hold of that damaged piece, it recognizes that as damage, and then it triggers an inflammatory response or it triggers an immune response. And the same thing with toll-like receptor four. When toll-like receptor four gets a sense of some of the components of bacterial cells, like endotoxin. It's basically a warning signal. It says, hey, we have, you know, there's some bacteria here. There's some type of infective process here, whatever it is. And then it, um, and then it triggers that inflammatory response. And T3 is protecting against that. But I think it's partly protecting against that because it's, it's minimizing the damage because it's allowing for the proper production of mitochondria and then the proper mitophagy and autophagy and, and lipophagy so that it's basically um, having adequate energy allows the cells to clean up the damage and then rebuild so that you don't have to signal that pathway as potently. That's, I don't know. That's kind of what I was, what my interpretation was as you read it. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, we're almost done. Uh, this is less stretched. So I'm just going to finish this up. So this is what I basically mentioned, that we do not want to use T4 only because the conversion is inhibited. So several epidemiological studies have suggested that patients with NFD have increased prevalence of overt hypothyroidism and subclinical hypothyroidism. Likewise, patients with overt and subclinical hypothyroidism have increased prevalence of NFD. In healthy liver, hepatocytes have higher DIO1 expression and stromal cell show low expression of DIO3. So this is the DIO1 is the enzyme that converts D4 into D3. Number three is the one that converts D3 into reverse D3. So in normal cell, you have enhanced conversion of T4 to T3 and, and small conversion of T3 to reverse D3. However, this expression pattern reverses in patients with advanced NASH as evidenced by decreased DIO1 expression in hepatocytes and increased DIO3 expression in stromal cells. These changes in expression of diogenase during late NASH lowers intrahepatic T3 concentrations either by decreasing conversion of T4 to T3 or by higher conversion of T3 to reverse T3. So typically people will always see high reverse T3 and or low T3. So reverse T3 can block the effect of T3 and high T3. I mean, high reverse T3 is often a sign that your cells aren't properly energized. So your body can't uptake that uh, more so T4. You went to a very good study like a few episodes ago talking about like tissue levels of uh, thyroid hormones. Then similar findings were also seen in rats fed a uh, methionine-choline deficient diet to induce NASH. Although their circulating T3 levels were remained unchanged, hepatic DIO expression and intrahepatic T3 concentrations decreased. So this basically shows that it's not always a good idea only to check blood levels because it can be deceiving. These, These mice had normal T3, but their liver T3 was decreased, and that's why they had liver problems. So these, uh, there is emerging evidence that impaired thyroid hormone signaling in hepatic cells is associated with increased fibrosis in FLD. Manka et al. found low free circulating T3 was associated with increased liver stiffness measured by transient LO. Man, you should fill in for me here. Elastography. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These findings suggest that the, uh, the possibility that decreased circulating T3 and or intrahepatic T3 might promote hepatic fibrosis. In this connection, preclinical studies suggest that thyroid hormone might have an antifibrotic role 
since thyroid hormone and the thyroid mimetic. Fell in for me, please. <laughs> so be so bet so better room. The bedroom. We're able to reduce. We 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 gotta work in the synergy, man. <laughs> I don't know which ones you know and you don't know. <laughs> and so better room is not one that I know. Right. I know there's like a lot of like synthetic thyroid analogs that they're trying to promote in some of these these studies now. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that drug, we're able to reduce liver fibrosis. This antifibrotic effect likely was associated with the ability of thyroid hormone to increase mitochondrial activity and mitophagy. So very interesting stuff. Uh, a lot of people also have liver fibrosis. I don't think this is very different to scalp fibrosis and the thyroid can be helpful for that. Maybe more so for the liver than the scalp. Though. Anyway, um, unless maybe, I don't know if someone have actually tried applying D3 directly on the scalp and saw if that actually can like reduce some of the fibrosis, not necessarily result in regrowth, but just like made the scalp more supple. Yeah. So this it's is interesting. The, it's yeah. interesting though that they say that like increased mitochondrial activity and mitophagy and whatnot is, is the mechanism by that protected against fibrosis, yeah. which would lead to fibrosis being not only some type of inflammatory pattern, but some type of ener energetic deficit, which you could argue is um, based on this study is they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, this is the last quote that I'm going to read because it's the only uh, thyroid study that I discussed. So patients were treated with a daily dose of T4, and I think the dose was very small, uh, like 18 micrograms per day. Do you know that's not yeah. a lot? They um, titrated, they say. Yeah, so they, they did control for TSH to like 0.34 and 1.7. So it wasn't like the TSH was out of control, but still you need that conversion to T3 to have kind of like the beneficial effect. Uh, so they increased it to have the TSH level between these values. And then after patients were treated with T4 for 14 weeks, we found that intrahepatic liver content decreased by 12% relative to baseline. So the reason why I think the, um, the fat content only decreased by 12% is because there was impaired conversion of T4 to T3. And I would like to see a study where they use um, T3 instead. So I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast that they were giving people niacin up to that they also tethered up the dose over the months. And I think it was like after 10 months or something like that, they had about a 50% decrease in liver fat um, by using niacinamide. And I think you will have the same benefits from niacinamide because it's, the mechanism is mostly by increasing NAD. So that's it for this study. That was a pretty good one. Pretty, it was dense, but it was good. There's a lot of good, there's a lot of jewels in that study. Yeah, yeah. I, I shouldn't say it's a study. It's more like a summary of multiple sites, like a review. That was very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I might want you to send that to me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, the whole point is to restore energy me metabolism. That's kind of like the, what they show is that you get fibrosis. If you don't have enough thyroid, you don't have proper mitophagy, lipophagy, autophagy. Am I forgetting something? Mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah, so thyroid hormone will make sure that your cells are healthy, producing energy, signaling normally, preventing the fibrosis, munching up all that fat stored in your liver. Um, yeah, so I guess you can say that people that have a high risk of NFLD tend to be those that have um, lower thyroid. And I wonder if you can make the connection with PUFA, since PUFA might have an antithyroid effect, and that can obviously contribute to like NFLD and then NASH with the inflammation. So I think short-term studies show that uh, PUFA 
isn't doesn't fatten the liver like saturated fat, but in the long run, you always see that PUFA is the one that creates the worst outcomes, like a high PUFA diet. Yeah, because you, especially for the NAFLD stuff, um, I'm pretty sure there was a study showing that having PUFA increase the ROS and lipid peroxidation inside the liver, which transitioned the NAFLD just from fatty liver to NASH, which is a non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is actually inflammation of the liver. And that inf- the, the inflammatory state, it could be triggered by the destruction of the mitochondria and the cellular components by having a high amount of ROS generation from the low energetic state or the overload of endotoxin and then being loaded with polyunsaturated fatty acids. So I think the, the, the cures to fatty liver, because right now there's no cure according to modern medicine, but it would probably be, first of all, be diet. So modulate the microbiome. A lot of fruit juices have protective effects against fruits and whole fruits and fruit juices and dried fruits and whatever have a protective effect against fatty liver. Then you also have, um, adding adequate protein helps to lean out the liver significantly. And then whey protein specifically will increase the glutathione content of the liver, which can help to protect against some of the, the damaging effects with ROS. Um, then using, then also repleting nutrients. So like calcium has a protective effect. Magnesium has a protective effect. Vitamin E has a protective effect. Uh, choline is, has a protective effect. All the B vitamins have a protective effect. You mentioned niacinamide already. Um, and then also besides that, the Tudka does have a protective effect in fatty liver and helps with the microbiome as well. And then also, um, you can use something like thyroid aspirin has a protective effect. So like if essentially the cure to fatty liver is entire lifestyle dietary overhaul, that's really what it is. There's not going to be some silver bullet magic drug that's going to come out and like, maybe it'll take the fat out of your liver, but like, I don't think it's going to cure the problem overall. Like you're not going to continue to, you know, go have your, whoever it is, is 64 ounce slushy, um, <laughs> and, uh, and a whole bunch of fries from Mickey D's and then take like 500 milligrams of niacinamide every day. And then <laughs> your fatty liver cured is going to be like, <laughs> mo- I think most, most of it will be through dietary means. And there's a lot, there's a lot of anecdotal reports of people curing or eliminating fatty liver with based on with a pre and post ultrasound, just doing dietary changes. And then obviously, as you mentioned throughout the study, thyroid hormone can be a potent um, aid to this entire process. Um, So you could use something like natural desiccated. And then even they use only in the T4 therapy. And I think that was mentioned that that was in type two diabetics. So they were already had like severe metabolic dysfunction and they still saw a decrease in liver fat. And I highly doubt that they changed their diets because most of the clinical studies, especially because the way that they went about the thyroid hormone supplementation was to just titrate TSH between 0.37 and 1.4 or 1.14, whatever it was. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a litany of things that can be done for fatty liver. And then I think even for NASH or for cirrhosis, I think that implementing these strategies can be quite helpful. I had a patient recently who went to uh, hospice. They, this individual was, was going to die essentially with, they had about three weeks to live because they developed, developed something called hepatorenal syndrome. So not only were their, their liver not functioning, but their kidneys blew out on them too because of everything going on with the liver. And then the, the mortality rate is super high. So the doctors essentially said, there's nothing we could do for you. You have to go to hospice. Um, but I'm thinking in my mind, I wonder if like taurine, glycine, whey protein, collagen protein, um, aspirin, um, you know, maybe progesterone, thyroid, 
the B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, like all the fruit juices, like loading this individual up on all this stuff and see if that can rehab the liver perhaps and, and like get them out of that state. Cause the liver does have, I think there are some, I think I saw a study where there was some crazy ability of like the liver to regenerate from cirrhosis. I think it was an animal study though. So I, I'm going to have to look for that one. Maybe I'll present it next week if I can find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the biggest thing that I would say, like we already discussed like fatty liver in a, in a, in a previous episode and you gave a really good summary right there. The one thing I would add is like vitamin D. So I've been oh, yeah. ranting a lot about vitamin D lately and like, especially when it comes to the gut. So you talk about like cleaning out the gut and I think like vitamin D makes such a big difference because it upregulates the natural production for antibiotics, the natural antibiotics in the gut to regulate the gut to calm the immune system, which I feel is the most important. So you can eat the right diet, you can use herbals and whatnot, but I don't think if your vitamin D is an optimal, if it's not an optimal place, you're just going to have struggle with gut issues. So especially like the vitamin D in the immune system, the regulation of the immune system, I have found so much benefit. And the way I get my vitamin D is with the sun. So obviously I get a lot of other benefits as well, not just from the vitamin D, but from the sun in general. And I've noticed so much benefit just from getting a lot of sunlight on a very frequent basis, most of the time on a daily basis. And that's going to clean up the, like your gut to make sure that you're producing less endotoxin and vitamin D has extremely beneficial effects in the gut, preventing fatty liver. So um, it's going to prevent that. So vitamin D is also very good for, by lowering inflammation, shifting from a TH1 state to a TH2, which is from inflammation to anti-inflammatory state. Um, so vitamin D is the first thing I would focus on when it comes to fatty liver. And then all the things you mentioned, like the protein and yada, yada, eliminating PUFAS. Um, and then obviously I would just add to it, come because we've been talking about that this whole episode. So I think that's a good addition. And um, what else would I add? The thyroid, obviously, just a study. So <laughs> I think that would be very beneficial for the liver in general. Yep. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole litany of things. It's not going to, it's a plan or a protocol rather than just this one super special compound. <laughs> yeah, except vitamin D is a super special compound. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, That's vitamin D is actually rat poison. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, it's like you, you with vitamin D is like me with a water buffalo. It's never going to end. <laughs> I just think it's, so, it's just crazy to me. Like it's, it's just like, I can't help it. You know, like I generally, I'm from New Jersey. So I have like a little bit of sarcastic humor. So that's like, I try not to do it too much because I feel like depending on where you're from, like some people don't appreciate the sarcasm as much. Like my mom used to hate that I was so sarcastic <laughs> about things, but um, yeah, I think that uh, it's just like some of the things are so absurd. Like I feel like the only way to, to like, is to just make fun of it a little bit. It's like, yeah. like the vitamin D or like the vegetable oil stuff, like looking at that study, like looking at the trends then looking at trends and disease and just, but it's the sugar, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know. I get a kick out of it. It makes me laugh a little bit. Yeah, if, like it's it offensive, well. if it's offensive to anybody, you know, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll tone down the sarcasm, but yeah. yeah. Awesome. I really enjoyed this. There was really good studies that we discussed. Um, is there any parting words, any farewell things you want to say to the audience? Uh, just, you know, keep adapting to your circumstances and do the best you can with what you got. Well, I hope you get your, your sleep sorted, your energy sorted. Um, hopefully, um, you know, What's the right words for this? Like, not crash. I don't. I don't want you to crash, man. I don't think I'm gonna crash. I think I'll be okay. I just, uh, it's just because I want. Like after that one day, after I did like that two, because in the past I did that a lot when I was on night shift. I couldn't sleep, so I'd be like an hour of sleep, and then my like twelve or thirteen hour shift, 
and I feel like it didn't. Well, it definitely did crash me, but I feel like you get your body adapts and gets used to a new homeostasis where you're kind of like just being tired is just like normal. Um, I feel like a lot of people live like that, especially because even if you're not working eight hours a week, even if you have like a nine to five, it's still kind of a grind, like five days a week, you got to get up, you got to get to work, you got to you sit there in the office or do whatever you're going to do for all those hours and you come home and then you're just kind of like beat. Because I remember I, I did that too, when I was working as a home health nurse, I was doing like, well, it wound up being more than nine to five, it wound up being like nine to seven, five days a week. And that was kind of tiring. Um, <laughs> so it does. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, you get it to the new homeostasis. I think, I guess the most important message for anybody, for anybody interested is just like find that time to relax. I think that periods of relaxation and leisure are extremely important. And like some of my mo- my greatest insights are like the most intelligent things, <laughs> at least that I thought I, I've, I've thought that I've thought about came from periods of like leisure where I could just relax and like things would just you know, I'd be thinking about some problem or trying to find some solution. And it came out there. Whereas if I'm so busy doing stuff all the time, like I don't have those breaks to just, you know, yeah. to have, to have that leisure. So exactly. But that's why I'm doing this, uh, this uh, detox for a week and definitely feel the same, but what you're talking about, but uh, I really yeah. appreciate you coming on, even though you're so fatigued. Um, I really had a blast and then yeah, um, I had always good time. <laughs> awesome. So thanks for listening guys. We really appreciate it. Please leave, Uh, positive reviews wherever you are and see you in the next one. Cheers guys.